Welcome to the Podglomerate. Hello and welcome to Plus 7 Intelligence, the show about how games impact people. My name is Chess. This episode continues our series talking about games and education. First, I want to apologize for getting this episode out a little bit behind schedule. There is a silver lining to it, though. Because if I had released yesterday as planned, then I would have missed the chance to tell you that today, right now, you can check out an amazing project on Kickstarter. Earlier in the season, in our series on games and mental health, we spoke with Adam Johns and Adam Davis of game to grow about how they run therapeutic tabletop role-playing games. Well, they and some other partners have taken it a step further, and they have created their own RPG that, from the bottom up, is about getting all the positive and life-changing benefits of games. It's called Critical Core. I've been following it for a long time, and I'm so glad that it is here. The game is designed to help young people build confidence and social skills. The game is designed to help young people build confidence and social skills and enable parents or counselors to easily take on the role of the facilitator, even if they've never played an RPG before. This campaign hasn't even been going on for 24 hours, and they've already gone past their funding goal, which is super exciting. Game to Grow is a nonprofit, so this is a fantastic excuse to support a game on Kickstarter. So go check out Critical Core. The link is in the show notes. Now we're getting to part two of my discussion with game design professor Scott Nicholson. You'll definitely want to check out the first part in last episode so that you can hit the ground running with this one. We start by going into details of educational escape rooms he has created. After that, we'll talk about the biggest mistake people make with educational games and how he has a set of principles to avoid it in his designs and with his own students. So here it is, the epic conclusion of my interview with Scott Nicholson. Yeah, I heard you on a podcast describing, I guess it was a puzzle box that I thought demonstrated that really well. And when I heard about this, I was like absolutely floored. I thought it was so amazing. I believe it was a breakout EDU box for working with Canadian elections. Yeah, so this was the breakout EDU game I created called Ballot Box Bumble. I made it when I first moved to Canada because I wanted to get a better handle on how the Canadian election systems work. And so I created the game, and the story being that the, the students were volunteers at a local poll. The poll was just closing down, but the poll manager was nowhere to be found. But they needed to get a basic count of the votes before Elections Canada contacted them to find out what's going on. But the box is locked. Uh, so they end up having to figure out how to get the box open. And as they're rifling through the poll manager's office, they begin to run into some of the different forms of election fraud. Uh, that had happened in the past. And so one of them was a robocalling scandal that happened in Canada where people were called and told their polling place had been moved. Um, and that was a lie. 
And, and so as the players are finding these elements of uh, scandals and ways that this election had been attempted to be fixed, they also find a letter in there saying, hey, make sure and get out of town before the polls close. Uh, make sure you want to frame those volunteers for everything that's gone on here. Uh, so the players are continuing to find clues and get the box open, and they can get the box open. They can count the ballots, and at the end of their time, Elections Canada calls. Now, this is role-played by a teacher um, or whomever to, to do it, and the game is won or lost based on the conversation that is had when Election Canada calls. It doesn't matter at all if they get the box open. There's three different endings to the game, and based upon the conversation, the players get one of three newspaper articles. And the winning condition, the best ending, is if the players report fraud. Because that's what we wanted people to come away with, is to understand if you're a volunteer at a polling place, this is one of the reasons you're here, is to be an extra set of eyes to look to see what's going on. And if there's something suspicious, to report it. And that's how the players win that game, is by reporting fraud. If they don't report fraud, then they get a newspaper article about that they were the ones that have done all this fraud. And then you have this reflection afterwards to talk about, well, why didn't you report fraud? Well, we just wanted to get the box open and count the votes, and that's how we won. And help students have that realization that oh, part of your civic duty as a volunteer in these situations is to look for things like this and to say something if you see something that's going on. And that's a case, again, where you're asking these whys about what's going on. You're thinking about what are the learning outcomes that could come from the activities you're taking in the game. And in this case, whether the players win or lose the game, it's not about that. It's about the reflection and the discussion you have afterwards because that's where you learn. It doesn't matter in the game itself if you lost. If you have a good discussion to say, all right, well, what have you learned from this and, and what might you do differently in the future? That's, that's where you learn something. So that's a game you can get for free. Uh, BreakoutEDU.com has a number of free games available on their website. You do still have to set up an account, but once you've gotten that account, you can then download that game, and, and I don't have a charge on it, so you can try it out if you want to learn all about the Canadian electoral systems. That's awesome. I was definitely really interested in, in this because, you know, like I said, I was just going gaga for <laughs> escape games this year in escape rooms. And then I hear you talk about them and you're talking about, oh, well, they can be so much better. They can be so much deeper. They can be educational. You know, I already thought that they were pretty educational because, you know, they challenge you. They get you to work in a team. But it was so cool to, you know, kind of hear your vision for how games can, like you said, kind of put people in a place and and challenge them as kind of as a character or uh, challenge them through the storytelling and get them immersed in that, and then that can push the benefits and the, the depth of the experience so much further. I think we're seeing, we're starting to see it in the in the North America. Places like museums begin to bring in escape rooms as ways to get people more deeply engaged in a topic. Over the last few years, I've been working on a, a funded project with uh, the Science Museum in St. Paul, and they are doing a three-stage game that will involve an escape room to help people uh, look at concepts of evolution. One of the first games that I made uh, for this kind of space was for Fort Stanwix, which is a national park in upstate New York, where players get to take on the role of a British saboteur as they sneak into the quartermaster's office to figure out how this fort could be sabotaged. 
uh, to figure out which is the best sabotage to suggest that they use. As they're doing so, they're learning about the defenses of the fort and, and where there were potential weak spots. And the reflection afterwards is the players learn that the fort actually did burn down. And this was based upon um, one of the beliefs of how this all could have happened. I see a long tail for escape rooms. People ask about, is escape rooms a fad? And right now, the, 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 number, the number of escape rooms are not supportable in the long run. We can look at other markets in Europe and Asia and see that, um, that the high number of these games at their high price, it's a luxury game experience. But I see a long tail for escape rooms being their use in partnership with an organization. Whether it be, and that's where they came from. I, when, when I point to some of the old tales of escape rooms, I, I show pictures of in the military, in the Navy, they had these wet simulators where you have things that go wrong. And, and you know, you work with NASA, they use the same kind of thing. We're going to put you in a small room with lots of controls, and it's a space situation, and things are going to go wrong, and you have to work together as a team to solve these challenges. So these concepts have been out there and I will continue to be out there. And I see that as a long tail of escape rooms is going to be this tie-in with other organizations that have a goal to train, to teach, to inform, to educate. Um, or corporate organizations like with the things we do that are looking to market a product. We've done movie tie-ins, TV show tie-ins. They're going to continue to live in those spaces. Um, we won't see as many of them in these recreational market. Uh, one person ta- says that the, in the escape room industry that he believes there'll be about the same number of escape rooms in a community as there are movie theaters hmm. in a community uh, because it can support in that same number. Uh, we'll see where that heads. But I think my advice to escape room owners listening to this is if you haven't yet started thinking about how you could create rooms and partner with local organizations that have learning outcomes, think about that because that is a long tail for this escape room format. Mm-hmm. What do you see are some strengths that escape rooms have that setting? Uh, what are some strengths you see with escape rooms as it relates to educating or being a useful tool for, for teaching? In my opinion, the two best times to use a puzzle box or an escape room in a, a, an educational setting. Uh, one is before you start a unit in order to get students interested in what's going on. Because they can set the context as to why something matters, as to why something that the students are getting ready to learn actually matters. So in a historical situation, by putting people into historical setting, so they get to replay something that went on. Um, in a science situation, to understand why the science they're getting ready to learn, how it's used in the real world, by creating a simulation. So if you think about these escape rooms as simulations, is what they are. Um, so that's the first way, is to help people understand why what they're getting ready to learn matters. And it can be a situation where the room is very difficult, and the players try it and fail because they don't have a certain skill set. That's a nice uh, way of doing, in, in corporate training, I like to use that model a lot. Give the players something difficult that they try and fail at, then give them the tools that they needed to succeed at, then let them try it again to see, oh, okay, now I can do this thing because I have these tools. And that's actually the same model that they use in superhero movies too. You know, it's, it's this hero's journey. That's why it works is, is this big challenge at the first that you fail, then you train and you build and then you try it again and now you have succeeded. Um, and so that the second point where these are useful is afterwards. After you have learned something and you're getting a chance to apply it in a simulated setting to work together to see, did you actually learn this stuff? 
and help you build confidence to understand, yeah, I can use this. I now understand how I can use it. So they can serve as a reflective tool at the end of uh, learning something. I don't see them working as well in the middle. There's other forms of education that should be used when you're actually acquiring the skills. And part of that's because of the time pressure involved. When you put time pressure on something, as we know, when any sort of extrinsic reward is introduced, it makes people laser focus on completing that thing at the detriment of exploring, of trying and failing, of play. And that's a key difference between play and games. When you introduce this reward, the playful exploration tends to fall by the wayside, and that's one of our most powerful tools in learning. So with the escape room model of either something at the beginning to say, let's get you ready, or something at the end to see, let's how you did, that's when they work well. They don't work as well for the in the middle, the skill building, the formative time of learning. Yeah, that's really cool. This show has a lot of people who... Um, make games or are in education and particularly in this series specifically focusing on games and education i like to talk about the particular strengths and weaknesses of different methods because i think that a lot of us have an impression of educational games maybe the ones we grew up on aren't all that great and but they're the ones that kind of stick in our minds and it's good to kind of branch out and try to think about them in in a different light you know, I think nowadays they're being used a little bit more, with a little bit more intent, with a little bit more strategy, more than just making a game that's a quiz mm-hmm. that's barely in disguise. Yeah, I have two rules in my board game design class for my students. Rule one, no games where you roll a die and move a piece on a board. Because that takes away agency from the player. Now, that's a rule like any of these rules in design. You can break that rule once you understand what you're doing. But at the beginning, I want them to throw that out. I want them to think about how do you give the player's choice. And rule two, no asking questions off trivia cards. <laughs> that is eliminated as a method of teaching. And so because it's not teaching, that doesn't teach. And Trivial Pursuit, as Canadian as it is, and people like to remind me it was invented here, it also did significant amounts of damage to the educational game design world because we based so many games off of that model for decades. And that's why when I say we make educational games, the eyes roll because people are picturing roll a die, move a piece on a board and ask a question or have a video game version of that. March around the maze and then the minotaur appears and he asks you to read a question. (laughs) And so that's why I tell my students early on, we're simulating things. We're creating simulations where people are going to make choices and they're going to see the impact of those choices. And that's how they're going to learn. Now, you, you asked about, you're talking about some of the weaknesses. Um, one of the big weaknesses in, in escape rooms and puzzle boxes when used in education is the fact that they are these group experiences. And if they're not designed well, you can end up having people that are left out. And again, that is because of the timed nature of the game. When you put that kind of tight extrinsic reward on this activity to say, yes, you win if you finish it in this amount of time, then someone who is weaker or struggling, the rest of the team will just ignore them. And you have to be very creative in the way you design your games to avoid that that problem. That's one of the bigger problems with this kind of team-based, time-based, is, is that the weaker students can get left behind when they're in a group. You were talking before about like reflecting on an experience. And that's something I think is interesting about even just commercial escape rooms is that even if it's in a jokey manner, they kind of encourage you to reflect on the experience. You know, 
afterwards you'd take pictures with signs that say, you know, I'm, I'm the genius or I'm the one who slowed us down or, you know, <laughs> you know, they try to get you to enjoy and reflect and talk about what happened because it was such a compressed time. You might not have any idea what your teammate on the other side of the room was doing, but the creators of the room want you to reflect on, on what happened. I think that's interesting that that component is good for education, but it was, you know, it's already kind of a standard in everyday commercial escape rooms. And this is something where the escape room industry can learn more from the LARPing world. When I first got involved in talking about escape rooms, I was talking about them as forms of live-action role-playing. And I ran into a lot of resistance from escape room organizers and and companies who did not want me to make that comparison. (laughs) Because they felt that LARPing had this negative connotation to us. Like, oh, no, we don't want to say we're doing any role-playing. But something that is built into live-action role-playing is the debrief after the game is over. Hmm. Uh, There's actually several things that are useful. Um, One is how to talk about being triggered around something and how to indicate that you're in a space you're not comfortable with, which they don't have in escape rooms. Escape rooms don't have – most of them don't have the concept of a safe word, a way to – to formally say, if you're not comfortable with something, here's what to do, and we'll let you get out of that situation. I would encourage and hope this is something we could grow into and mature into as an industry, instead of the, the way it is right now, which is, you know, oh, just get through it. You can do it. But the other part is on the on the tail end, the reflection. And in any LARP, there's always this time at the end where you go through this process of reflecting upon what went on. There's even a term for the excitement that you have after you finish a LARP, which is the same thing you have when you walk out of an escape room, and it's called churn. Hmm. And you know what I'm talking about if you're in an escape room. At the end, when you just – you can't even form sentences you know, because you're, you're, you're just – and you're in this state of churn where you're – and froth – where you're frothing about what's going on. It's, it's this concept, this, this term of froth that gets people all excited and you're frothing. But you have to let that froth bubble down a little bit so that then you can reflect upon what's going on. But so I think that having this formality of, of having that reflection, that's an important thing. And I would like escape rooms to look at that a little bit more deeply. Um, in one of the rooms when we were talking with making a game for a client, we talked about the idea of creating pictures that are automatically taken at Hmm. moments in the game where we feel that they are our highlights that we want the players to then look at and reflect upon later so if we know that when this lock is opened or this thing happens something really interesting has just happened Um, some haunted houses do that so there's one haunted house in niagara falls that advertises you can see the pictures of people being really scared at one moment and that's their marketing to Hmm. say you know come here and see what they're all afraid of and we could do the same thing with escape rooms. To ha- if we know there's moments where there's something we want people to reflect upon, we could create that so that that end reflection can be a little bit more meaningful than just holding up the I'm with stupid sign. <laughs> yeah, as great as that is, you know, <laughs> we can definitely uh, reflect more than that. I think maybe we kind of brushed on it earlier, but it's something that I've heard you talk about in educational games in general is... The, the way that rewards are given in an educational game. And you said that you think the model should be that the learning itself should be the reward. Can you talk about, about how you see that being an issue in existing educational games and, and how you think it can be improved? 
Well, if you got a semester, we can do my entire uh, gamification class, which starts with reward-based gamification, and I get the students all excited about that. And then we start to read um, Alfie Cohen's Punished by Rewards and Jane McGonigal's work on that and really start to look at the psychological damage that we do with rewards, which we can see if we look at the damage that we've done with grades. Uh, you know, When kids mm-hmm. want to go to – before they go to school, they're excited to learn about the world. And then they start getting extrinsic rewards for learning, and we see that passion die. And by the time they get to college, and I have them, they are so broken of being willing to learn something because it's interesting as compared to is it on the test uh, that we've done so much damage to our learners with these systems. And and the games have the ability to break that away a little bit if we can help people realize that, yeah, you're playing this because it's fun and you're learning something, not because you're going to be getting a reward for doing so. But it's hard because we're in this system. Our educational, industrialized educational system is such a failure to keeping people engaged with learning. And then we continue it. We slap Fitbits on our wrist that measure steps and we use those for a while and then we get a little tired of it and then we find the the motivation we had to exercise goes with the fitbit that goes back in the drawer because it killed it for a while and then we can slowly build it back up and we we know this from looking at motivation that if you put an extrinsic reward on something you will damage the intrinsic motivation that people had for doing that thing so when i got to talking about gamification and gamification in the classroom i saw that teachers were just replacing grades with other extrinsic rewards And they work fine in the short term, but the long term, it doesn't fix the problem that we have. And that's when I started to think about, well, how do we actually address the problem? How do we get it? It's this core difference between play and games. It's this core difference of how do we take models of play? You know, a game, my my pocket definition of games is a game is a form of play with goals and structure. So as a mathematician, I have the ability to solve equations. So if I have this formula of games equals play plus goals plus structure, and I can subtract play from both sides, then I have goals and structure equals games minus play. And goals and structure is what a lot of gamification is, which means goals and structure, the gamification is a game without play, which sounds pretty awful. Hmm. You know, let's take a game, but not have any of that play stuff. Let's just have the goals and structure. So I started to create this concept called meaningful gamification, and I've written some articles about models of meaningful gamification. It's the idea of how do you look to build intrinsic motivation? How do you look to use concepts of play and storytelling and choice, narrative, social engagement? How do you help people, instead of going after the pursuit of these superficial rewards, how do you help them do something because they're interested in building their motivation around it? How do we use that as our gamification? I I wrote an article where I experimented with different forms of gamification in the classroom and showed how leaderboards just tore this class apart that I was Hmm. teaching. And the leaderboards encourage the students that don't need to be encouraged and discourage the students who need the help. Hmm. They are really only motivating to those people that don't need it. And instead, what we should focus on, if we're going to add more layers of of overhead to our classrooms, we should think about how do we create overhead that's going to help those learners that need the support to build their interest. And the way that we can do that is through building their intrinsic motivation, by giving them the ability to make choices, by putting them in the driver's seat, by helping them to find what they can 
they, they can build upon. So I've got several articles out there on ways to do this and models to do this, but I really want to discourage just slapping one more level of extrinsic rewards on something in the classroom and saying, look, it's great. I'm like, well, no, you haven't, you haven't fixed the problem here. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's interesting that a lot of education, even in a classroom, is built around games of one form or another. Here's a game with flashcards to teach this one thing. When I was a kid, we did... It really isn't a game, now that I think about it. It's kind of more like a game show setting, but there isn't really no game to it, where you just do multiplication and math problems in front of the class, and you're trying to do it as quickly as possible. Um, <laughs> that's not really much of a game there. It's just basically just trying to make a competition out of, and even a show out of doing math. Well, and even, even our grading systems are a game. They're a really bad one, but that's, that's what it is. You know, it's, it's all of this game. Um, when I talk about gamification versus game-based learning uh, and try to help people understand which term they should be using because they are different and they appeal to different sorts of motivation, I, I help people to think about in, in a classroom, the syllabus is like gamification. It's a set of rules, goals, and structure that are not really related to the learning in the class, and they sort of sit on top like a layer, and that's what gamification is. And the game-based learning is where the game elements are tied tightly into what it is you're learning, and they can't be separated out. By playing the game, you're learning the thing, and that's game-based learning. Hmm. That's interesting. You know, Yeah, and it's interesting that you know I think that some people... Maybe they don't like the idea of games in education, but like you said, there's it's already there. It's already kind of in the DNA. Teachers in their classrooms are already implementing their own games. They often create their own games, you know, sometimes out of nothing on a whim. Or maybe they have games that they've been using for 15 years to teach. The games are already there. Now there's more digital tools involved, or maybe there's some different elements to it, but the games have already been in the educational system for a long time. And it's natural because we learn about the world through play. That is how we, when we discover the world that we're in, we learn about it by playing. I did, when I was started to study adult learning and creating these training games, and I was looking at models of adult learning, I realized that the model of adult learning and the stages adults go through when they learn is the same thing as the stages of play. The same process that you go through when you're playing in a space is the same process an adult goes through when they learn about something. And that was a big aha to me to help me realize, yeah, we really do need to embrace playful methods in getting everyone to learn because that's how we're used to learning. And when we can get people in a playful mindset, that's why they're going to be more open to be able to learn. Because then when school came along and they took play and they added structure to it, and rules to it, and these extrinsic rewards, that then killed our old playful motivation to engage with the world. And so then when you have these rewards sitting there in different forms, the play fades away, and you get this hyper-focus on rewards, and you lose the power of exploration that comes with creating a playful space. So teachers now have to deal with these structures forced upon them of creating these reward-based systems. Many of them would love to create spaces that are more playful, to allow their learners to be able to explore in the world. And that's the challenge that is, that's faced by teachers today. Yeah, I've definitely seen, I've definitely seen that, you know, you know, I've seen kids that they have no problem with learning, but 
as soon as they see, like you mentioned before, they see that grades can be attached to it. They, they don't want to fail. They don't want to be judged as not smart because they didn't get a good grade. And so they might react to that in many different ways. One of which is just to more or less give up on something because they'd rather not try and not fail in their mind than to try and to fall short. You know, like you said, the, it's the extrinsic motivation. It's the stripping away of the joy of learning and, you know, kind of the natural process of learning. I definitely can see that in the people that I know. This is so when I did my studies about different forms of gamification to use in the classrooms, any sort of extra layer like this adds overhead for the teacher. And in order to apply some sort of that overhead, other things have to give way. So as a teacher, you've got to choose what are the forms of gamification I'm going to bring into my classroom. And as I studied this and looked at the impacts of what was going on, I came away with two things that had the greatest impact on learners in my class. And these are two things I still use to this day. And it's what's going I'm going to put my focus on as far as extra stuff to bring to the classroom beyond what I already have to do with grades and all that. And the first is choice. Giving the students some control over what it is they're working toward. It, it can just be a little way, whether you let them set the context for the paper they're going to write or for the assignment they're doing, um, whether you give them a choice of, do you want to do a written paper? Do you want to do a presentation? Do you want to do you know, something else that you come up with? Looking for the ability to give your learners choice uh, can have a great impact in helping them build motivation, helping them figure out, okay, I'm going to do this thing because I have some power in choosing what I want to do. And the second is to do what I can to create a more failure-safe space. Right now, our schools are not failure-safe spaces. There's high penalty for failure. And when you have that high penalty for failure, as you already indicated, one impact is that people don't try. The second impact is that people do only what they believe they can succeed at. And that's not how we learn. We, learn, we don't learn by doing the same thing 10 times. We learn by trying and failing and learning from our mistakes. So in my major assignments in my classes, I let my students redo their work. And that's because I would rather spend the time. If I'm going to spend extra time, I will spend that extra time regrading assignments. Because at the end of the day, if a student tries and fails and I give them feedback and then they try again and succeed, I know they have improved. I know they've learned. I can also encourage them to take on harder things. Because they know that they can try something that maybe they might not succeed at because they will get feedback and a chance to try again. So I give open-ended challenging assignments that I hope my students will, will fail at the first time. They'll try stuff that they might not be comfortable with so that I can give them feedback and they can give it another shot and improve. So that's of, of all the leaderboards and all the extra points and all of the group quests and all of the narratives and all of that. Those are the two things I found that I put my time into that had the greatest impact on helping. For me, I was focused on helping the learners in the bottom two-thirds of the class to, to perform better. Hmm. The, the students, the strong students also flourish under this. They're fine because they get to do what they want to do, but they were going to flourish no matter what I gave them. You know, that no matter what the game system is, the top students are going to game it and do fine. But it's those students that are struggling that I, if I can provide them more support to help them to be able to succeed. That's, that's my goal in using these systems in the classroom. Yeah, that's, that's really amazing. 
Yeah, like I said before, I'm doing a show, but I'm now I'm going back and rethinking all of my uh, education and, <laughs> you know, how I went and, you know, where I got my motivation from and, you know, how it changed over time. And yeah, I, I can definitely see that trend of when I was doing it because I loved learning and it was great. And then at a point, I guess I realized that to get the grade I wanted, I only needed to do so much. You know, and so then what was the point of me trying any harder than that? Mm-hmm. You know, and it's all about the structure that you put on it, all of the, the overlay of the syllabus and the overall structure of what it takes to get to that grade. It makes a huge impact, not just on GPA or whatever, but on how someone approaches learning at all. Well, and then it will continue onward. How will they continue to approach life? Are are they just going to do what is needed to check those boxes? Are they going to look for opportunities to go beyond that space and uh, create some really neat stuff? Hmm. Yeah, that's something interesting, too. That's like, you know, now we've kind of talked about the meta of education of this is talking about basically the soft skills of life, not just the, you know, learning goals or meeting a standardized test, but approach to challenges, approach to being able to overcome things, having the, the skills needed to do that it's so interesting to me that games can be such a great tool for that because you know we were talking about failure earlier and video games allow you to do that they allow you to try and fail and they encourage you to fail so that you can learn and and get better and it's interesting that that games can be one of the tools in building that skill set being a person who not just gets through a course or not just gets through to get a diploma, but has a set of soft skills that can be used on any challenge, on anything that the life brings up and, and can potentially be part of that learning about yourself, learning what motivates you and being able to use that information to, to advance through life. And the hope is that they are not so broken down by having had these extrinsic rewards that they aren't able to do that anymore. And that's, hmm. I, I, I get very frustrated when I look at the damage that our industrialized s- school systems have done to learners. And I wonder, how would all of this been different if we stayed with the more apprenticeship model? We stayed with more of a model where you, where you learned as you created and the skills you were building were the skills to move towards something. You know, it's, it's, it, it makes me sad at times, but I, I, what I can do is try to raise awareness and say, well, you may be trapped inside of this grade-based model as an educator, but you could certainly bring games and play and simulations into your classroom to help create some failure-safe spaces, to create some spaces where you're like, yeah, you know, let's try this out. And that's earlier when I talked about the idea of using an escape game before a unit and then using it again after a unit, creating that first one so that the, the learners do fail it, can actually create that space where you say, yeah, it's okay. You know, you didn't make it, but that's mm-hmm. fine. Now we're going to learn what it would take to do it. And it actually, it, it sets the groundwork to say, yeah, this, this is a bit more of a failure safe space than perhaps you're used to. Uh, you, you aren't going to succeed at everything on the first try, uh, but then you build grit and you learn and then we come back and we try it again. Yeah. Yeah. I can definitely empathize with that. Well, one of the main reasons why I wanted to do this series on games and education is to get kind of a brain trust of different perspectives on how people are implementing games, how they're creating games, 
and uh, bringing them into a classroom, using them for an educational environment, you know, all the different possible uh, scenarios that with grading systems and, and locations and, you know, level of learning and try to piece together techniques that, that can be used to, to improve the system as a whole, to generate ideas and to try new things. So I, I try to be, I try to be positive. Uh, you know, you're not the first guest that's talked about the, the kind of the overwhelming problems with, with the system as it is. But, um, I'm hoping that, that we can make some progress. Well, and I think uh, the more messages that get out there like this one, the the better, the more people that hear this message from different voices, the more they might start to question and think about what it is they can do in their own little worlds uh, to to make things a better place. Um, for me, the book that completely changed my life on all of this, and I'd encourage any educator out there to take a look at it, is uh, Punished by Rewards by Alfie Cohn. That book for me changed my life and changed my whole perspective on this and pushed me into this direction that I'm in now. So that would be the the one thing out of this. If you've listened this far and you haven't read that book, it is worth it to take a look at that book and learn what he has to say. All right. And how can listeners best find your work on the internet or connect with you, social media, things like that? So if you are in the world of Twitter, you can find me there at S. Nicholson. If you're on the Book of Face, if you search for Professor Scott Nicholson, you'll find me there. Um, if you want to read any of these articles I've been talking about, I negotiate with publishers to be able to put my writings online. And so if you go to scottnicholson.com, you'll find a link there with says full text articles, and you'll find all the models I've talked about for gamification and the research about gamification in the classroom, as well as my research on escape rooms. And if you're interested in about 15 years of library science research, you know, you'll know you find all, all of that as well. Um, but that's something I try to make sure that that's always out there. All right. Well, thank you so much for, for coming to speak with me on the show. All right. Well, and thank you for the work that you're doing here because it, it can make a difference. Again, thank you so much to Scott Nicholson for sharing his wisdom with all of us. I really appreciate how refined his approach is to using games. Whatever we are talking about, he's already two steps ahead and around the corner talking about the potential pitfalls or the superior approach to solving these problems with games. I wanted to highlight the discussion about how gamification can go awry and actually be counterproductive because of the way that our brains react to incentives. It's a really salient point to all of the areas that the show covers and is applicable to how we understand our own lives outside of games. That's it for this week's Intelligence Boost. Tune in next week when I will be speaking with Paul Darvasi, making his second appearance on the show. Last time he taught us about how games can actually instill empathy in players. So we are going to be getting the latest updates on that and also on how Grand Theft Auto can be used for education, as well as a bunch of other things that you're not going to want to miss. And of course, if you are subscribed to the show, you won't miss it because it's going to get delivered right to you. And of course, everyone here has already joined the community Discord channel for the podcast. The quickest way to get to it is discord.gg slash plus seven. That's discord.gg slash plus numeral seven. And you can find the show on Twitter. 
at seven underscore intelligence. Thanks for listening. I'll see you in seven. The Podglomerate, a sonic universe.